Thanks, guys. So, um, what is it, 17th of December? We are well into our Christmas season now, aren't we? We know when Christmas starts, because the music's in the shops change, don't they? They suddenly change, you suddenly notice every tenth song is now a Christmas song. When other people think that Christmas starts, and I think we're pretty much into the Christmas, I mean, we've got tinsel on the mic stands, it's, it's Christmas. Um, how, many, how many of you guys, and has anyone actually finished their Christmas shopping yet? Okay, one, two hands, feeling pretty smug this morning. Who is yet to start their Christmas shopping? And more hands. Okay, you've got eight days. <laughs> what I've, what, one of the, the, my favourite Christmas traditions is actually the onslaught of Christmas advertising, because a bit like Christmas music, it's also kind of heralds this moment for us, and you start to notice all the, 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 the food packaging in the shops has little bits of uh, tinsel or Christmas baubles or snowflakes on them, and, and, and that's obviously now we're into Christmas. But fun, it's, it's strange how this has happened, but advertising itself has become a tradition. We all actually look out for when the John Lewis and the Sainsbury's and the Marks and Spencer's advert comes, and I think it's meant to be sometime around the middle of November, and that's actually, that actually becomes an event in our Christmas calendar. It's amazing how they've done that. Um, and we see uh, you know, the famous Christmas adverts are for, I mean, chocolate, what do we get? We get spirits, um, the supermarkets, obviously, we get electronics, perfume, which are uh, incomprehensible. I just don't understand them. There's the, what, there's the one with Johnny Depp. Yeah. What's that all about? I don't understand. Sauvage, yeah, Dior, yeah. Yeah. Who's got, who's, who's got Heather on her secret centre this year? Um, and the supermarkets are the ones that, that we actually all notice, aren't they? And they, because they have these narratives involved in them, they want to tell a story through them. Even, I noticed this year, Audi had a, had a narrative to it. Previous years, Audi would just be, look at everything you can get for £10. And, you know, look how much cheaply you can do your Christmas meal for uh, this year uh, by shopping at Audi. And it would just be, it would just be products. Um, but even now, they've got this, this carrot narrative or running through. So they're, they're even buying into this idea that Christmas advertising is all about selling you a feeling. It's all about promoting to you an idea. Uh, it's not just putting products on display and saying, look, you can buy these things from our shops. And advertising is all about that. Advertising is designed and, and engineered to, desi- to, to sell to you everything now. It's all about the here and now. You need to focus on what is here and now. Um, But Jesus offers us a radically different approach to life. He offers us forever. So modern advertising is all about the ego. So this is something that um, the psychologist Sigmund Freud uh, came up with. He said that the ego is is all about our our inner feelings, our, 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 our search to maximize pleasure and to avoid pain. That's what your ego is. And around Freud's time, advertisers weren't appealing to the ego. They were just um, selling the benefits of, of, of the products on a rational basis. They were saying, look, this is how durable our product is. This is the quality of the product. Um, and some very early advertisers in the 1960s noticed um, that what Freud was saying would, could be applied to advertising. So they started to appeal to our irrational Feelings and, and Freud says that our ego is, is that our, as, as human beings, we are fundamentally irrational people. We are hardwired for, to, 
to seek out primal motivations around power, around security, and around sex, and around comfort. Well, that's how we're hardwired. And so advertisers in the 1960s started to change the way they advertised and started to appeal to um, all these things. And I'm, I'm perfectly qualified to have a dig at advertising because I work in the marketing industry. So um, that's fine for me. But advertisers up until then were focusing on rational things. Um, has anyone seen Mad Men, the, the hit series? Anyone seen Mad Men? It's on Netflix now. You can, you can watch it now. Go home and watch it this afternoon. The first episode epitomizes this change in advertising. It's based in the 1960s at a New York creative agency, and the central character is a man called Don Draper. Don Draper. He's on the next slide. That's Sigmund Freud. That's Don Draper. Look at him. Doesn't he look great? Don Draper is he's a workaholic, he's an alcoholic, he's a womanizer, um, and he is the master of what is known as the elevator pitch. Does anyone know what the elevator pitch is? Yes, there's a few of us. The elevator pitch is, is as what it says. Um, so say you're going to work at a, a massive corporate office in some kind of downtown uh, city building in London or New York, and you happen just to be in the the elevator or the lift next to the CEO of the company, and this is your, this is your 60 second chance to sell him an idea, sell him yourself, um, to pitch an idea to him. So the, the journey of the lift, you've got 60 seconds to distill the essence of some kind of idea to give him the vision behind it, and that's what an elevator pitch is, and he is the master of the elevator pitch. And we, in episode one of the whole series, we get the whole idea about what advertising has become and how it appeals to the ego in the, in the whole storyline. So it sets up this dilemma. So Don Draper's uh, advertising agency, one of its major clients is a, is a tobacco cigarette producing company called Lucky Strike. And scientific research has just revealed that um, tobacco is harmful for you. Okay, now it's become common knowledge amongst the population that tobacco is harmful for it. It, it, it leads to lung cancer and all kinds of other things. And as, as his, his client, Don Draper, has this dilemma, how am I going to sell this product that every, it's now common knowledge that actually is destructive to our health? He's got this, I mean, as, an, as, a, as a creative director, he's got this dilemma, how am I going to sell, how am I going to spin this message? All episode, he has nothing. He's going, you see him going about his life, going about his personal life, and just lost in this problem. How am I going to sell this product now that it has this reputation? Even gets to the meeting with the, with the Lucky Strike executive board. They come to his office, and he's still sitting there wondering, how, am I going to, how are we going to sell this? I have to come up with something. And then all of a sudden, the, the, right at the end of the episode, he asks them, can you tell me how your tobacco is produced? And then they go through all the, all the methods, how it gets taken from the farms into the factories, and then they say the tobacco is toasted. And he says, yes, that's it. Everybody else's tobacco is poisonous. Your tobacco is toasted. And so he's saying, ignore the health issues. We're not even going to mention the health issues. We're not even going to address them. We're just going to focus on how it makes people feel, how it makes people feel now when they light up a cigarette. That's what we want them to notice, that it's toasted. It's different. It's somehow different. And then he gives this great speech, which I love as a marketer. He says, right at the end of the episode, he says, advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you are doing is okay. You are okay. So the premise that he's trying to sell is, be happy now. Everything about it 
is being happy now. And, and if we're not careful, we can make Christmas into just being happy now. If, we're not, if we don't focus, and it's been so great to hear already about the incarnation. Thank you, Heather, for bringing that word and for the, for the, for the songs we've been singing. Christmas is about more than just now. Christmas is about eternity. And if we're not careful, and I even see it in myself sometimes, I can make all the Christmas celebrations about here and now. And I forget that, um, that it's just a momentary happiness if I'm not focusing on who Jesus is, the real Christmas story and what's going on. And I love Christmas. I'm absolutely mad for Christmas. I love the food. I love the family. I love the decorations. I love all the, the music. I love the Christmas films. Um, but if you're like me, you can sometimes get distracted by, in, in thinking about the Christmas story, I can get distracted by the set design and the costumes and the drama, and I can completely forget about the main character of what the Christmas story is all about. So Jesus offers us a lasting joy when we make it about him and not the stuff going on around him. And that's why uh, I love the poem In the Bleak Midwinter. Um, I've been asked to talk about my favourite carol, and this is my favourite carol, and um, apparently all the uh, music I was reading online about this carol, and all the experts say it is the best song, okay, so <laughs> I've chosen the right one. And this is a poem written by a lady called Christina Rossetti, she was an English poet, she wrote this uh, in the Victorian times, and this, this poem is about the fact that Jesus is so committed to you and I, to our future, to our eternal future, that he chose to enter our pain and he chose to enter our helplessness to bring eternal change for us. That when we're surrounded by gifts at Christmas time, and gifts are good, Jesus is the one true gift that we should focus on. So advertising is all about selling you now, just focus on now, but Jesus gives you forever. And so he meets us in the nativity, Jesus meets us in our darkness, he meets us in our mess. He meets us in our helplessness, he meets us in our affections, and he meets us in our hearts. And that's what this poem is all about. So verse 1 launches straight into Jesus meeting us in our darkness. It says, In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow. Snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Now, she's not describing the, the, the actual circumstances of the nativity. It's, it's obviously a, a Middle Eastern climate. But she's using the Victorian, like what we would have experienced as an English Victorian winter, to, as a metaphor for what the spiritual circumstances were of the incarnation. So this is, you think about the conditions of the incarnation. There had been 400 years of silence from God up until this point. So up until Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, there was a gap of 400 years between then and the start of the New Testament. Silence from God. Up until that point, he'd been speaking through prophets. He'd been speaking to Israel directly. He'd been guiding them where to go, what to do, how to live, and then silence. So there's this idea that Christmas is, uh, or winter, midwinter, is just totally void of life. Totally void. It's when all, most of the animals go into hibernation because it's too cold, all the birds migrate, all the leaves fall off the tree, only the hardy remain. It feels completely bleak sometimes midwinter. There's very little bird song, uh, there's no colour, there are no flowers. Um, it's, it's December, 
is the time when, I mean, in January, you start to get a few crocuses coming up, don't you? So you start to see life coming back. But December is when it feels like life is bleak and it's dark. And it says, snow on snow. I love this idea. Snow on snow. No signs of it getting better. It's just darkness falling upon darkness, falling upon darkness. So hard ground and hard hearts. She talks about having a hard ground. And this is hard hearts. And the Bible testifies to it. In Psalm 14, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So she is using this idea of a a Victorian winter scene um, as a metaphor for the state of the world, for what Jesus was entering. And then verse 2, we see Jesus in our mess. So we've had Jesus in our darkness, Jesus in our mess. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. The incarnation should absolutely blow our minds, what is really going on. Jesus didn't appear as a man when he was 30 and start doing all these things. He didn't come from heaven as a man and start doing things as a man on earth. He, became, he was God in heaven and became a man. He chose to come down and be born into a baby's body. It's absolutely incredible. And this is, not a, this is not just a cute children's story, which is sometimes we all can be tempted to think it is. God Almighty becomes a man. And we can't compare this. It's so hard for us to, to wrap our heads around this. It's not, like, it's not like a great lion, one of the greatest animals we have, becoming a a small domestic cat, although that is quite a transition. It's not even like like an angel becoming a small worm, because an angel is still a created thing. The incarnation is the creator of everything. He spoke the universe into existence, becoming a created thing, humbling himself to become a created thing. And not just any created thing, but a small, helpless baby. And I find the way that Uh, John the Baptist's interaction with Jesus is absolutely fascinating with this because Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. Do you know that? John the Baptist said, here comes the man, talking about Jesus, of whom I'm not worthy to untie his laces. And then Jesus, we see later, um, washing the disciples' feet. It's this, this amazing act of humility that Jesus comes down and joins us in our mess. And Philippians 2, verse 6 says, Though he was born in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it's amazing that Jesus chose to be born in a, in a stable. So even though he was a baby, he was still actually orchestrating everything that was going on, because the fact that he was born in a stable is, is a symbol of what he was doing, what he was coming to do for us. So, you know, he's God. He could, he could have arranged it so that he was born into, you know, a Roman leader's family and then been born in a Roman palace and had all the medical care that he needed, the best medical care in the world probably. But he chose to be born in a, in a town in the middle of nowhere, in a stable amongst livestock. So we see that... Um, Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem because they've got to register for the census. And she's obviously traveling pretty late term, full term probably. And her waters break and no hotel would put her up because of the mess. They don't want to deal with the mess of, of, a, of a delivery of a baby. So they, they have to put up with this stable. 
So this holy, pure and clean Jesus chooses to become an innocent baby and gets born in the muck of a farm stable around, you know, all the muck of a... And farms aren't particularly... If you ever stayed on a farm or lived near a farm, they're not, they're not clean places at all. And this is what Jesus was, chose to be born into. And so this is absolutely prophetic. Jesus is getting involved in our mess. And that's what he's doing. And in verse 3 of the poem, we see Jesus in our helplessness. The poem says, Enough for him who cherubim, angels, worship night and day, a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. This idea of, of Jesus being totally dependent on a, on a nursing mother to care for him. Um, you know, this almighty, self-sufficient, doesn't need anything in heaven, humbles himself to the point where he's utterly dependent, moment by moment, on the nursing care of a woman. It's, abs- it's, it's so hard to understand, but it's, but it's absolutely magnificent that it has happened. So this is a God who has chosen to embrace the human condition, the pain and the suffering, the mess of the human condition. And J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this, the Almighty appeared as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. We tend to just look at the fact that he became a baby and... and it's easy to ignore the fact that he, this is a whole, like the first two years of a child's life, they are so dependent on you um, for everything. I mean, babies vomit, babies need their nappies changing, or whatever kind of uh, ancient version of a nappy they used at the time. But, you know, they are utterly helpless for the first few years. A newborn can't even hold their own heads up. You have to support their head for the first, what is it, two months? Something like that. It's absolutely incredible that Jesus would choose to come into this and, and make himself utterly helpless in this way. And he was totally human. He was fully God and he was fully human. He felt everything that we feel. And it's really important because he is, we know that he was thirsty on the cross in John 19. He grew hungry in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He grew tired and weary at the well in Samaria. He learned and increased in wisdom. He felt emotions. He became troubled and anxious about his impending crucifixion. He felt sorrowful over the cross. He marveled at the faith of a centurion. Jesus marveled. He wept over the anguish of Lazarus' family and friends. He felt everything. So when it says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, is saying that we have this person who has now ascended back to heaven but experienced everything we experience. So he is able to empathize with everything that we go through when we stumble, when we make mistakes, when we're hurting, when we're in pain, when we don't know what life's about. Jesus lived all of that with us, before us, and knows exactly what it's like to go through this life. We have that person mediating between us and God the Father. It's absolutely incredible that God would choose to do this, and it shows us his commitment to us. In verse 4, we see Jesus in our affections. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. So 
I think it's saying here that Mary um, is almost like an ambassador for the whole of humanity, all of humankind in, in kissing the baby Jesus is representing everything that, that we do when we offer our worship to Jesus. It's as, as though we're giving him a kiss. It's as though we're planting a kiss on this infant baby that we have so much affection for. You know, when you have a child, um, you know, you've felt love before, but when, you've, when you hold a newborn baby, it's completely different, isn't it? And, and Mary's response to this in this moment is like a, a representation of our response to Jesus so when we worship, when we do things, when we are obedient for, to Christ, it's as though we're kissing the, you know, the newborn baby of Christ. And then in verse 5, Jesus in our hearts. So she concludes her poem, What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I give him my heart. So how do we respond to what Jesus is doing in this moment, in this great act of humility in taking on the, the, the body of a baby? Well, if we had valuable things, like a lamb, we would give him that. If we were wise and we had our best thoughts, we would give him that. We would give over our best, you know, our best intellectual abilities to him. But what, is, what does Jesus really want in response to this? What, he's, what is he asking from us? He's asking for our hearts, everything about us. He's asking for our whole lives in response. So he doesn't just want, to bring this into a modern understanding, he doesn't just want our weekly giving in church. He doesn't want us just to serve on a rota and say, that's it, that's our bit done. He doesn't want us just to every now and then pray and talk about the gospel. He wants everything to do with who you are. He wants you from top to bottom. And that's our response. And it says, it says, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So our true and proper worship is to give everything we have, everything we possibly have to Jesus in response to this great moment. And this is a, this is a great poem. Um, a great poem about what really happened at the first Christmas. And we know, later on in Jesus' story, that despite this great, this, this great um, gesture of love towards us, this great gesture of com- commitment towards us, Jesus was ultimately rejected. He was born in humility, and he died in humility as well. So nothing, he didn't go on to become the great you know, um, emperor, the people that we might be expecting of him. He disappointed people and he was rejected by people. And that's what it means in Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the stone that the builders thought, that's of no use to us. We don't need that stone. Actually became the stone that the very building needed to rest on. Otherwise it collapses. And that's obviously what the gospel is. Jesus was crucified, rejected, and actually we, we come to realize the very person that we crucified was the one that we needed and was saving us. Now, have you noticed Home Alone? Um, and you're watching it, aren't you, on Friday? Home Alone is actually a, Christ, uh, a Christmas, uh, a Christian, sorry, a story of the Christian story. It's the gospel told through this, this family's um, trials and tribulations. So in both films, it's exactly the same story in both films as well. Home Alone 1, Home Alone 2, exactly the same story. You may have noticed 
You get into a situation, Kevin hates his family. Okay, he's arguing with relatives. He's got this annoying brother. What's his name? The oldest brother. Anyone? Oh, I have to look it up. Buzz. Is it Buzz? Yes. He, hate, he hates his family, and he gets into a massive argument. He gets blamed for something, and then he gets locked away. In the first episode, he gets locked away in a room. Uh, he spends the night there. In the first episode, they, they do a head count. He's not there. They drive off. They go on holiday without him. He's left home alone. In the second film... They split up in the airport. He thinks he's following his dad to the, to the gate, and he follows the, the wrong man. Somehow gets... I mean, it's not really believable, is it? But somehow he gets on a flight to New York instead of Paris, I believe it is. So in, in, in both films, he gets, um, he gets rid of his family, and he, he's, he is ecstatic about the fact that he has gotten rid of his family. He thinks, great, this, this, I'm going to celebrate this. I'm going to do whatever I can for the next... I mean, well, children only think about one day at a time, don't they? But I'm going to do whatever I want now. I don't need my family around telling me what to do. My annoying brothers and sisters, they're gone. Who needs a family? So he spends like the first two days at home uh, just pigging out on all kinds of ridiculous food, going to the shops, buying whatever he wants. And then he does the same kind of thing in New York. It's the same story both times. And then he gets into trouble because he's only six or seven years old. He can't really look after himself. Um, And he is forced to turn to a a social outcast. In the first episode, it's old man Marley, the man um, shoveling snow on his drive, who there are rumours about him, not very nice rumours, I think that he might have attacked his family with a shovel, the same shovel that he's shoveling the snow on his his driveway. In episode two, it's the pigeon lady, isn't it? I don't know if we we ever find out her name, but she has become ostracised from society. She now lives in Central Park, and her friends are the pigeons. These are two social outcasts Um, people that the community has rejected for some reason or other, but for no real proper reason, we discover. And these people come to his aid as his redemption. And then the redemption story unfolds, and these people become absolutely vital in saving him and saving his Christmas and bringing him back to his family. So by losing something, he rediscovers its lasting value, and it's a happy ending. He He does really love his family. He's just like a normal child who thinks that his family's the worst. This is what Christmas is about, okay? We lost God, and we celebrated. We thought, yes, no more God now to tell us what to do. We can live exactly how we want. But it doesn't work, and it doesn't last. The world turns into turmoil. But an outcast, a social outcast, someone rejected by men, brings us back to God, and then we realize what we missed. We realize what life was for, and now we worship that same God. So Christmas is great, isn't it? Christmas is, I love, you know, I love all the food. I love uh, the decorations. I love the way that people, are just, their spirits seem lifted around Christmas time. But it's a joy that doesn't last unless we make it about Jesus. And we get to that four o'clock feeling, don't we? We get to that four o'clock feeling on Christmas Day when we've had our Christmas meal. That's great. That's come and gone. We've watched the, Christmas, uh, the Queen's speech. That was good. We've opened, probably opened most of the presents, and we get to that four o'clock feeling where everything that we've been busying ourselves with and preparing for for the last you know, six or seven weeks, it's a long time of the year, it's gone now. That's it. Most of the Christmas day is over, and that's it for another year. And it can feel quite deflating, can't it? But what if you could find a joy that lasts beyond that? See, the nativity is not just a quaint children's story. 
Um, and I, I wonder if part of the uh, struggle to, I mean, for me, I wonder if part of the struggle to understand what the nativity is about is, is our only reference point sometimes to the baby Jesus is when we dust off the doll that's been stored away in a cupboard somewhere and bring them out for the children's nativity or, um, or the tiny figurines we might set up on our mantelpiece every Christmas. And that might be our only reference point for what the baby Jesus is and what he's really about. I know that has been the case for me. And I've been on a bit of a journey this Christmas in really kind of understanding what Advent is about, what nativity is about. It's not just, it's not just a children's story. It is the awesome, mysterious, and beautiful encounter between Jesus and the humanity that he created. Christmas is all about getting it, getting what it's all about. So my encouragement to you this Christmas is not just to walk into the nativity scene, see what's going on, nod, and then carry on your way on the rest of your Christmas activities, but go inside, as, as we heard this morning from God through Heather, go inside that stable, look into the face of baby Jesus, and just recognize the magnificence and the majestic moment that is taking place that Jesus emptied himself of all of his glory in heaven, chose to become a baby, and that's the scale of his commitment to us this morning. So I believe we're going to sing this song. I probably should have asked you to come back um, onto the band. I think we're going to sing that song now, or a modern version, although I'd like to hear Mike have a go at the traditional carol. But I'm gonna, just going to pray, and then we can respond in worship. Heavenly Father, it is, it is an absolute wonder that you are so committed to us that you would humble yourselves and be born into a stable amongst livestock and you come into our mess, you come into our helplessness, you come into our darkness and lift us out of these things. But you don't just do it from far off, Lord. You come into it, you embrace it, you embrace the whole human experience. And so, Lord, at Christmas time, we want to just respond to that. We want to make it about you. We want to, want to go deep into this mystery of the incarnation. So, Lord, as we respond now, Lord, would you continue to speak to us about your commitment to us now? Your commitment to us over the, the holiday season, through the stress, through the pressures of the Christmas season, Lord, would we find space to, to remember who you are, what you're doing in our lives, and your commitment to us? In Jesus' name, amen.